Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm gonna send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. One of the topics that I get questioned about constantly is networking. How important is networking? Can't I just get really good at my craft so my work speaks for me? Because frankly, I hate networking. And how often do I really need to do it? Today's guest, Emmy Award-winning editor-turned-director Kabir Akhtar, feels very strongly that, as he states, it is really important to stay networking however much you're doing. It's probably not enough. Kabir has built his entire career through networking and creating genuine relationships, not to mention constantly practicing his craft and doing the work, no matter if he's getting paid for it or not, as you will learn about in our interview. His work includes Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Never Have I Ever, Arrested Development, and the Academy Awards, just to name a very select few. As a three-time Emmy nominee, Kabir won the Emmy for editing the pilot of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and he has now transitioned to directing full-time, having directed 12 episodes of TV in the last season. In our conversation, we talk about the skills that Kabir developed and the challenges he faced in building the career that he now enjoys today. We dig into the psychology behind building successful relationships and also the perseverance that's necessary so you can keep your head in the game and have the confidence to forge ahead regardless of the setbacks. Now, just to note, this is the third in a three-part series with editors who have successfully transitioned to director. And if you want to listen to the previous two parts, just go back to episode 125 with David Rogers and episode 126 with Andy Armaganian. If you are looking to advance your career, sharpen your networking skills, and learn how to play the long game, Kabir drops more knowledge bombs than I could keep track of in this interview. He is a wealth of knowledge. All right, without further ado, my conversation with Emmy Award-winning editor-director Kabir Akhtar. (laughs) 
I'm here with Kabir Akhtar, who is an Emmy-winning director and editor. Your work includes shows like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Never Have I Ever, Arrested Development, the Academy Awards. That's just to name a few, not to even mention some of the bigger names that might be coming very, very soon. You're a three-time Emmy nominee. Uh, you won the award for editing the pilot of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And now, one of the things we're certainly going to talk about today is that you have transitioned to directing full-time. And in fact, you directed 12 episodes of TV last season. And the one thing that you left out from your biography is that you and I have been trying to get this call in the books for at least seven or eight years now. I've kind of <laughs> lost track. Couldn't have been seven because I didn't have a podcast. But it's it's been a while. It's been it a while. A pleasure. To finally have you here and finally get this conversation on the record, I'm really excited about this. So thanks for taking the time. Yeah, of course. It's funny. Uh, you're right. I have left that out of my bio somehow. I feel like I just, how is that right? No, I could just update my website and include like also has been trying to hang with Zach for like a decade. I agree. It's it's a big piece of the puzzle. It really, really is. I can't even remember where or when we met. You know, sometimes you really remember where you met a friend or mm -hmm. whatever. But like, I can't. Remember, I don't remember a time like that I didn't know you or where. I agree. Happened. Do you? I feel the same way where if somebody were to say, when did you meet Kabir? I can remember 50 different times we bumped into each other, had a conversation and chatted. I have no idea when the first time was. They all just kind of blend together. Yeah, because, you know, I've been in ACE, it's a 2020 now, so I've been in ACE for six years. But I feel like I knew you before then somehow. I think so, yeah. I think that it probably started, if I had to venture to guess, it was maybe when I was a speaker at Edit Fest in 2011. That might have been when you and I just kind of maybe got mutually introduced or said hello or whatnot. Um, but since then, it all just kind of blends together. Yeah. My first Edit Fest that I went to, I spoke at in probably 13. So oh, could it, Maybe it was later than 2011. I just know that the first time I spoke, I talked about burn notice and I was working on burn notice around 2011, 12, somewhere in that area. But um, it was probably, I'm, my guess is I would venture to guess that you and I met at Edit Fest. I don't remember doing it because it just seems like every Edit Fest, I check off my list, saw Kabir again, and we chatted, <laughs> right? And at any other ACE event or whatever, we always bump into each other and we get the chat. But right. now we get to do it for real. tried to make plans and then it didn't work yet again. Exactly. But we finally made it work. It only took a global pandemic for both of us to find the time on our calendars to have this conversation. And there are a million and a half threads that we could pull and we could talk about for hours and hours and hours. But I think the the value that comes with talking to you and sharing your story with people is helping them better understand first how it was that you just got into this industry in general. Because my guess is that with your Indian heritage and background, that your parents or your culture or your extended family were not all saying, you know what, you should really get into Hollywood because that's just what Indian kids do, right? So funny. So, so let's start there. Well, it's funny because you know, my parents moved to this country right before I was born. Um, and you know, they're living the, you know, Indian American, not, they're not Indian American at all. They're living the Indian dream, like move here, doctor, nurse, you know, eventually drive German cars. That was the plan and it works for them. And yeah, for sure. I remember as a little kid, my parents were definitely like, so you're going to be like, you know, maybe you'll be a doctor. And I'm like, no, as a little kid, I was like, nah, I am not trying to like cut things open and deal with blood and all this. And I remember my dad saying to me at some point, like I must have been in elementary school. He's like, well, that's not the whole thing. He's like, that happens for a little part of medical school, but you know, there's lots of types of doctors that don't don't do that. And I was like, well, you already just said it happens for even part of medical school. So forget it. I'm <laughs> out of here. But, you know, I mean, they've always been extremely supportive of whatever, you know, me or my sister were trying to do. Um, and, you know, it's funny because both of us ended up in creative fields. She's a creative director and graphic designer and does a lot of gigantic ad campaigns and illustrations for the New York Times and who knows what. <laughs> and, you know, I do this. 
it's, it definitely happened kind of by mistake. You know, I tell the story a lot, but it's, I was uh, in college uh, and it started off at Penn in engineering because I was like the math and science kid my whole childhood. I'd been like the math and science kid. Um, and I realized quickly that was not for me at all. I was like, this is like, you know, I like watching like the Discovery Channel special on like how they made this bridge, you know, but I'm, I was not, that was not, I was not cut out for that sort of work at all. But, you know, a friend of mine pointed out to me late in college, he's like, you do loads of theater. He's like, that's all you do. He's like, you're in theater more than you're in class and not just in college. Like I was spending 70 hours a week sometimes in theater dealing with like, you know, uh, lighting design for a long time, then directing by the end of it. It was just like, it was interesting that he said it and I never thought of it as a career possibility. And I didn't really think of myself that way. But even in high school, I spent every Saturday in high school, 12 hours, like in the auditorium, like, which I'm pretty sure, you know, most normal people don't do. Um, but he was right. I loved it. I'd always loved it. And, you know, having been a communications major and being a theater fan, being a movie fan, it really made sense when he said it. And uh, it was weird because I was like, oh, I, you know, let's try it. And I mean, so far, so good. Well, what I'm curious about is if I were to tell my story, it starts with what has become kind of a, a, a very common story for people, especially those of us that are either millennials or Generation X, somewhere in that uh, kind of zennials, whatever it is that you want to call us. Um, and we all say the same thing. I was running around the house with a video camera and I was doing VHS tape to tape and I was uh, just yeah. putting all this stuff together. And you're saying I was in theater and I was doing lighting design and I was doing directing. So it makes a lot of sense to me how you ended up where you are now as a director. But I'm really curious, what was the transition to, I want to be all by myself in a dark room. Uh, I, first of all, reject, as you should too, the stereotype of editors working in dark rooms. Um, I, uh, for years, was dealing with, you know, the guff you get from crew friends who'd be like, go back to your dark cave. And I'd be like, no, my office has windows. And I realized at some point, I was like, the people working on set are working in the dark cave. Not post, but production is working in the dark cave. Post is working oftentimes in like nice offices with, you know, like facilities. Um, and yeah, no, as a hardcore extrovert myself, obviously it's a terrible uh, match <laughs> for aptitude wise. It sort of happened kind of by mistake. You know, I, I, the seed I realized at some point much later was planted in like high school. I had like my old Mac, you know, in the early nineties and I'd gotten like a microphone attachment for it because it seemed like it would be cool. And the mic had like a line in plug and you could, you know, wire, I wired it up to the CD player that I had and would just like record stuff off of CDs and just started like, you know, slicing bits of songs together and making little like basically mashups, right? Just for myself, just for fun uh, when I was like 15, 16. And I remember a friend came over one day and he was, I was showing him some of the stuff and he was like, dude, people, you can get paid for this. And I think at the time we were thinking like, yeah, I guess they run these kinds of little things on the radio sometimes. And they're like, you know, coming up next, the coolest songs of 1991. They'll like play like a quick smash of them and be like, you're listening to W whatever. Um, that's my East coast giveaway, right? W. Mm -hmm. I, I grew up East of the Mississippi. It's all W's for me too. Yeah. Heck yeah. W squad for life. I'm making a W <laughs> sign. Um, it's funny. Cause I didn't really think that yeah, you know, at the time I was certainly not thinking about like, picture editing or working in narrative content or any of that. But then in film school, you know, one of the classes I took was uh, you know, was a post production class. It was up first, and they had just gotten this brand new thing. Right, they had just gotten an Avid, and I'll tell you, it made perfect sense to me. Just like getting my hands on it, I was like, "Yep, I completely understand this." Very strange. It's funny how sometimes you just, you know, encounter something that feels like it's a part of you 
out in the world. You know, maybe it's a piece of art or maybe you like, have, you know, gone to some house and you're like, yes, this place is for this, like, um, this is apartment is perfect. This is me. And when I found the first interface with media composer, I was like, yes, this weirdly is me. And, you know, the professor uh, saw that and he made me the uh, avid TA at school. Uh, which basically meant he wrote my cell phone number on a piece of paper, stuck it to the wall, and said, day or night, people, if you have trouble, call the beer. Which meant that I would get calls. I'd be at parties and get calls. People were like, I'm trying to drag through the sequence, and it's not playing like like the little bits of audio that's supposed to. you know. And just having to figure out, like learn and remember being able to tell people, like caps lock, it'll turn scrub back on, stuff like that. you know, Or helping people with like drive management over the phone. And like sometimes I would come in and like, have to figure this shit out because I was, you know, I was getting paid like, you know, $500 a month. I was getting paid to do this. And, uh, you know, because in my career, I never was an assistant editor ever, but I mean, I did that for the, you know, that time in grad school. And then I, you know, moved here and got a job at a little production company. And the same thing, me and my friend, you know, uh, AJ Dickerson, some of you listeners may know him. Uh, we were roommates for four years when we first moved here and we kept each other in business, pinging, ping-ponging jobs back and forth, you know, down the hallway, uh, which is great because we were able to keep each other paying rent, which we both needed. But we would work these little jobs where there was like, you know, one editor, no assistant, and we just had to figure it all out on our own. And for me, a lot of the time, he knew a lot more than I did. He, you know, he had worked in post-production facilities for a while during school. And like, I, you know, I was just like plugging, like, think everything into every slot until it worked. It's kind of my approach. Well, this brings me back to a memory that I haven't thought of for years, but very similarly to you. Um, I wasn't paid as like the, the the TA or the like the tech expert, but I got to the point where I had such a reputation in like the, the edit bullpen where they had all the student edit bays. I basically lived in mine. And I was at the point where the professors were coming to me by my senior year and saying, Zach, I'm teaching this class right now and I don't understand how to do this thing with Avid or Final Cut. Can you just go in and can you demonstrate this because I can't figure it out? I wasn't even getting paid, but they, they, I, usually you would check out an edit bay for like four hours. I was given the key for the semester. They're like, this is just your room because you always check it out like I'd slept in there. And I'm not advocating any of that, by the way. It goes against everything I talk about, but that's where I started, right? right? But that was the way that I used to live the lifestyle of the editor. So I can totally relate to all the random questions, being your own tech support, being an assistant editor, which I think is one of the components of why similar to you, I only was an assistant editor for five months of my whole career, which I want to learn a little bit more about. Because as you know, people say, I'm sure they ask you all the time, how do I get into scripted? Well, I've been told that I have to take a step back and be an assistant. I'm just always like, no, you don't. don't. There isn't one way to get in the door and you clearly embody that you don't have to be an assistant first. So talk to me a little bit more about that. I completely agree. You know, it's funny, like the the key takeaway, just to wrap up what I was saying, the key takeaway for me from that was that, you know, I just never told anybody that I couldn't do it. I felt like that was a piece of information that was not worth offering to people. Like, you know, it's until the point that somebody would come along, nobody, thank God, I mean, you know, nobody ever asked. So like, hey, you know how to do this, right? Before we hire you. Like, it just, it's stunning to me, even today, how infrequently people ask simple, like direct, short questions like that. They're like, hey, so by the way, you've edited a half hour show before, right? Or any narrative content show before. I, you know, worked on a show at some point with uh, an editor who got hired who had never done a half hour, who had never done a one hour, and who had never done, had never worked on Abbott. But he got the job, you know, just didn't tell anybody he couldn't do it, which is like, 
stunning. But you also have to be careful. I mean, one of the great pieces of advice I was given by one of my mentors was to be careful that you don't let your, so smart, I wish I talked like this more, was to be careful that you don't let your success lead your skill level. You know, you want to make sure that your skill level is ahead of your success or at least like commensurate. You don't want to like suddenly be succeeding and getting like opportunities. I mean, an example that I say, this is my example for everything, but it's like, suppose I got a call tomorrow, right? To be like, hey, this is maybe not a great example, but like, I got a job offer to be the DP on the new Star Wars movie, right? Like for a second, you'd be like, oh my God, that's f***ing awesome. But I'd be like, I do not know how to do that job, you know? And there are people in the industry who will say, yes, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna do that job and I'll figure it out as I go. Uh, But the opportunity for failure is so much greater there than the opportunity for success and not just, you know, screwing up the job, but also then like all the people who were involved in hiring you knowing that you screwed it up, that you weren't prepared, you weren't ready. And that is very hard to erase over the next several years as you're trying to figure out, go back down to whatever level you were at or should be at or where, you know, you feel comfortable. And you know, that you got to tell people, you got to tell people that you did that and that you failed. And like, there's nothing wrong with failing, but it's hard to recover from, you know, reputation wise. Agreed. And one of the things that I talk about with the, the students in my coaching and mentorship program, because there's an opposite side to this, that's very dangerous, which is perfectionism. Oh, I'm just not ready yet. I have to wait until I'm quote unquote ready, right. which means they're overly prepared. And what I always explain to them is you need to set yourself up for success on day one, meaning, do you know just enough to not drown on day one and be in a position to figure everything else out. You being a DP on Star Wars, massive failure. You walk in and you're like, what's the gel? What's a crane? Like, what are you talking about? Who is this guy? But as an editor or somebody that was your own assistant, like I know the, uh, the one of the transitions that I made that I've talked about many times is the time that I transitioned into TV on burn notice. And oh, one of that the, your transition point, right? That now? was my transition. So according to everybody and looking at my resume, that was my overnight success story, right? It took 10 years, but that was my overnight success story. But one of the very innocuous, very innocent questions that was asked of me by the post producer was, you're comfortable with Avid, right? Yeah, sure. No problem. I hadn't touched Avid in 10 years. I learned Avid. But I had been all Final Cut, and this was the original Final Cut, not the the newfangled Final Cut X version. But I knew and I believed in my ability to figure it out. They weren't hiring me because I was an avid technician. I was confident I could tell their story. I knew their show. Could I use the tools? It was going to be a couple of weeks. It was going to be pretty bumpy. And one of the things I remember, um, very distinct memory, is that the assistant editor that they had assigned me at the time thought that he was probably going to get that spot that I ended up getting to fill in. Interesting. So that this young kid with no scripted credit at all that's now in the editor's chair, my first week I walk into my assistant and I say, can you show me how to make an audio keyframe? <laughs> and just the look on his face like, yeah. are you kidding me? But right. I knew that all the little stuff I could figure out, but I had the confidence in my skill set to cut the show and tell the story. So as long as you can set yourself up for success to not fail on day one, you can learn the rest of it, but I don't want people to fall into the trap of, yeah, but I just, I'm not ready yet. Right. Cause like for you, you just, you just jump into things and you figure things out. Yeah. I think that, you know, that I have always had a certain amount of, you know, cockiness about that, which is, you know, a certain amount is healthy. Uh, there have been times that I had too much and it did not go well. Um, and you know, it's like you, you try sometimes to take two steps forward. Uh, and you end up taking, you know, you can end up as a result taking two steps back, you know? two additional steps back from where you started, which is so four steps back from the two you took for, you got mm-hmm. But like, I get it. Math, math, math and editing, you know, it's, that's why we chose to edit. Yeah, exactly. math, it, but I get it. But it's, it's, you definitely have to be careful. You don't want to like 
over succeed too quickly and, you know, without support. And I feel like that's an important thing that, you know, is not talked about that often. You know, I, I directed my first half hour I directed was in 2008. It was a show uh, that I did abroad, a British half hour. And, you know, I was really excited. It was kind of a, it was a bit of a, I felt like I had been ready for it, was really looking forward to it and felt comfortable doing it. Um, but I did not sort of have the structural institutional support career-wise uh, to maintain that level of support. You know, like I did not have relationships with the studios. I didn't sort of have the right relationships with the agents. I sort of didn't know enough of the right people who would continue to hire me on other similar jobs. And I didn't know enough of the right people to say uh, hey, I did this show, watch it, check it out, you know, and who could then be like, oh, great, come do this other similar thing for us. Uh, so in a way, I sort of went way up real quick and kind of came right back down to the level I was at right before. It wasn't like a big crash or a failure. I was just like, oh, it was sort of an outlier. It took a few more years I spent really working to develop, you know, a, a scaffolding or a superstructure to like be able to like be like, okay, well, now it's like not only risen career-wise, but also like have, you know, some stability here. Um, and enough people know about it. I mean, we talk about this all the time, but like, so a huge key to success in this industry, of course, is like relationships, right? And reputation. I always say there's three things, you know, you got to be good. You got to know people and you got to get lucky, basically. And my belief, if anybody that listens to the show on a regular basis knows that I freak out whenever I hear, hear the L word, because the L word is always used as an excuse. Somebody can listen to your story. We're going to get deeper into it. Oh, well, you know, Kabir got lucky or I just got lucky, which is ascribes all the control to ex external circumstances. And I just believe that that luck is the intersection of hard work and opportunity. You can control the hard work and you could control building the relationships that thus create the opportunity. The only thing that's lucky is the timing. Yes, completely. So you, you, you'll have somebody that'll spend months and months unemployed, unemployed, then all of a sudden, randomly, they get a phone call. Hey, are you available? Oh my God, I got so lucky a job came my way. Yeah, but if yeah. you reverse engineer it, there are 27 things you did beforehand that created the phone conversation. The timing is what's lucky. Other Completely. than that, you create your own luck. Completely. And and I, I am fond of saying that you got to do things to increase your chances to have certain things happen. My my stupid example is that, you know, it's by getting struck by lightning. Like if I said, hey, Zach, uh, we'll give you this job, whatever, if you get struck by lightning. You're like, well, okay. It's hard. Yo, it is hard to get struck by lightning. Most people have not been, but also like there are things you can do to improve your chances, right? You can, you know, you can hang out in Los Angeles, you go somewhere where there's a lot of thunderstorms, and you drive up like a mountain and you wear a pointy metal hat and like you do a bunch of stuff that obviously we don't recommend you do at home. But like, yeah, full disclaimer, don't try to get stuck by lightning. Yeah. <laughs> but you can improve your chances, right? There's, uh -huh. so in a way, yes, I mean, photons and so on, but like, you you can improve your chances of getting lucky, but you still have to get lucky. You know, I say this all the time, like every one of us has had a fortunate timing break. You know, there have been shows where I was hired on that I was dying to do that I know for a fact that I was their sixth, seventh, 10th, 11th choice. But, you know, the proper confluence of events, like, you know, this producer was late to this meeting. And like, so somebody else got to suggest me first. And like, yeah, they asked a bunch of other people to do it. And those people all said no. And like, you know, I mean, I suppose you could sort of list it all out, right? But just as a catch all, you're right. I mean, I would just be like, you have to get, you need some fortune to smile on you, you know? 
you can create some of that, but some things you need, you need to get some breaks. Well, I love this idea of how do I take whatever actions are necessary to increase the probability as high as possible that I can get struck by lightning. I love this. I'm going to turn this into a whole thing. I love, love this, uh, this image, this philosophy. And I want to talk more about what you did to ensure that your probability was as high as possible that you were going to make the transition first into editing high-level scripted television as you did for years. So let's let's go back to that point. Sure. It's funny because I do feel like my career has been really made up of a lot of turns, you know? I've been gotten lucky a bunch of times. You could say I created a lot of that, for sure. I do take uh, pride in having lined them up, but like, you know, it's just a fact, you know I mean? Like every single, you know, Tom Cruise got lucky at some point, you know what I mean? Chris Nolan got lucky. Like they all are very talented and they all work very hard, but like some things just had out of their control, had to line up their way. Um, and good for them. It's true for everybody, you know, who's succeeding in some way. I mean, look, some people are lucky because they have like a super famous dad. You know what I mean? Like, you don't know. And then they get to do their first feature when they're 26 and good for them. Anyway, uh, well, you talk about like assistant editing also. Like I, I feel sometimes I look back and I'm like, you know, I could have gone the assistant editor route. Maybe when I was like 25, 26, I could have really been focusing on, you know, I piled up enough editing days. I could have gotten into the union, which I, you know, avoided until I was in my late thirties. You know, uh, I could have found an AE gig. I was working on like, you know, reality documentary series with some editors who would be like, screw this. I'm going to take a step back. I got an in on one of these scripted shows, like big shows, got to assist for like a year. And like quickly the people they were working with were like, oh, you're an editor. You get it. Like starting to get opportunities. And then all of them broke into that pretty quickly. But, you know, I've also seen people get mired in the assistant position for years. And one of the drawbacks of that uh, compared to the thing that I did is that you don't get to be in the driver's seat, right? Like I was also getting a lot of training, very karate kid style, like a lot of training on storytelling, on, you know, editorial tricks, on like getting better at doing my own sound. I'm like, you know, you get a lot of notes about like that kind of stuff. And the more notes you get about certain things, once you realize if you're listening closely to what's happening to you, you realize you're getting a lot of the same notes from like studios or producers or whatever. You're like, huh, I, this is the thing I could get better at. I could get better at this sound effect treatment. I could get better at like cutting these sort of things to tell a story. I could get better at, you know, taking air out between lines, like a lot of these kinds of things. Um, and that's just experience you get only when you're in the driver's seat. It's such a weird singular job to be cutting, right? That as an assistant, you don't really get that training. You know, the sort of on the job, under pressure, under fire training that you need to really get better at it. Like then you're like, oh, now the battle is on. And it's, you know, everything's real. <laughs> like there's actual deadlines, there's actual pressure, there's actual strangers you don't know watching your cut and giving you criticism of it. You know, and you have to be prepared to not take that personally and just be like, great, how do we make this better? You know, so I mean, that kind of experience, that practice, it makes a big difference. My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found 
bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're gonna invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash topo. That's T-O-P-O. Absolutely. And I have to say, well done as a sidebar on getting Karate Kid into the conversation. Oh, um, I, it sounds like a shameless plug if I try to do it, but you did it so organically. So very, very well done. I, I appreciate that. Oh, no. Yeah, I totally forgot about that. You know, it's funny. It's like if only you had a giant like Cobra Kai poster back there behind you. Yeah, if only I had a Cobra Kai pillow and a Miyagi-Do pillow. Oh, my God, you do. On, on each side. Of my couch, we're we're only audio only, but in the in the video, like I uh, on each side of my couch, I have a Cobra Kai and Miyagi Do, and I usually have those in my edit bay, and clearly there isn't an edit bay anymore. But the joke I always make is, you got to choose a side. Oh, are you yeah. Cobra Kai or are you Miyagi Do? So that that was always a fun conversation. Well, but, it seems like there's a difference between like, are you '80s Cobra Kai, you know, or are you '20s, uh-huh. right? Yeah, like- very 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 different versions of Cobra Kai. Um, but I want to come back to this idea of assistant editor versus editor. Because when I tell my story, uh, very similar to yours, people say, oh, my God, that's amazing. Like, that's so lucky that you didn't have to be an assistant editor. How did you make that happen? And the simple answer is, well, that's the choice that I made. It's not that it just happened. I made a choice really early in my career especially nowadays that being an assistant editor is so disconnected from being an editor. It's almost like you're a data management technician as opposed to being an assistant editor. And that's a different soapbox where you and I could probably talk for three hours alone just about that. But I said, if I'm going to be an editor at the highest levels, I just want to cut. I don't care if it's for free. I don't care if it's low budget. I don't care if it's international garbage. I don't care. I want to cut because the more time I spend editing, the better an editor I become just because it's not in the exact right pipeline and it's not climbing a ladder, it's developing and honing a craft. Absolutely. So that was a choice that I made, but it was a sacrifice for almost 10 years of my career because I was turning down money to work on things to hone my craft. But if you're looking at the curve, it's a, it's a hockey stick-shaped curve. It's a hockey stick-shaped curve. Oh, you mean like it kind of starts off flat down here on yeah, the Yeah, it's a hockey stick. Yeah, so if, 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 it, uh, so if you're looking at what most people think progress looks like, it looks like this, right? So for well, audio, <laughs> it's audio. Uh, but it's 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 kind of this this linear line that's slowly progressing up. Like a straight. But line I up. believe that it's yeah. it's oftentimes the hockey stick where it's slow, it's slow, it's slow, then bam, you just take off and it shoots straight up. 
That's what they call the hockey stick shaped curve, right? It looks that, like a hockey stick. More like a, like, more like a banana, sort of like. A or a banana curve, whatever, right? Boy, this is, this is going to be amazing content once this is audio only, I must well, say, I'm by the way. I'm saying that, like, you want to be clear that if the banana is, like, sitting up, like, it's, it's but a vertical banana, right? Like, it's sitting on the ground, and then, like, you're holding up the top end of it up here, like, up, up straight up off the floor. So, like, it doesn't matter. You get it. It's I, I, I knew that you and I were going to have fun recording a podcast. I had no idea we would talk about banana-shaped curves, but I knew we were going to have fun, and we barely just gotten started but you're right i mean it's it's it it's a long game right like the idea is that like you know careers are different than jobs right like ideally you are you know people are looking to make a your this is your livelihood for your adult life which potentially is you know 40 years of work you know give or take hour i mean maybe you don't want to do that long it's fine but there are definitely people who are into it just to succeed and say they succeeded you know Man, it's, you know, it's, look, it's like, it's like musicians, right? They're, broadly speaking, there's two sort of buckets you can put musicians in. There's the people who want to be rock stars. And then there's the people who want to just make great work, you know, just like write great songs or be great performers. And like, there's a sort of just, you know, people, obviously there's a lot of gray area between them, but you know, the motivations are sort of what matters. And I think people that they're looking at, there are people who are very successful who are not super interested in like high quality music, right? That are just like out there just like as pop stars and great, good for them. That's just sort of not my jam. And I, you know, you can succeed at that a lot quicker and you can burn out a lot faster, like flame out a lot faster. Be like, oh, that was it. Flash in the pan and you're done. You know, well, and that's a that's a big part of this conversation, I think, is that once you say the the B word, once we talk about burnout, oh, my God, I could talk forever. Yeah. And you, you've hit the nail on the head, which is and I love this idea of the the two ends of the spectrum where you have the the rock star that just wants to be famous and wants to make all the money. And then the polar opposite is what let's call them the artist. Right. The artist just wants to do it for the sake of the craft. And I believe that the ones that are really the most successful are the ones that meet in the middle where they're getting paid really well and they're the rock star, but they're doing it for the process. And I think that in order to avoid that burnout, you have to be connected emotionally and feel fulfilled by the work that you're creating. And I feel so many people only focus on how do I get the next job? Well, when I go to the next party, I want to be proud of the credit that I'm talking about, or this might win an Emmy versus this might not win an Emmy. How about instead enjoy what you're doing for 60 hours a week first and then let that guide your choices? I feel so many people don't think about that and they're just chasing the external and not thinking about the internal. This is a smart point. You know, like I look, when Crazy Ass Girlfriend came along, uh, obviously it was a, it's so easy for all of us, right? To look back, you look backwards and be like, whoa, look at the way these things worked out. And they kind of like all, you know, this, this makes sense, right? But it's hard, very much harder to look forward and do that. And I, I do think that there's a lot of people who make choices like you were saying, like, how does this get me to where I'm going? But, you know, I was at this point where I had been working on a few scripted series at the time. And I was sort of not happy just with what the day-to-day of what I was doing. Um, and I got sent by my bloodline agent a script for the Crazy Ex-Girlfriend pilot. And I loved it. You know, again, I was a theater kid back in the day and a musical comedy pilot. What? That sounds great. Also, I, you know, I needed to like branch out and like meet more people. I didn't know enough people still on the scripted side. And I, you know, I've left working on new girl, which, you know, was a big hit, right? I just, it wasn't going where I wanted it to go. Uh, and you were only cutting new girl, correct? There was no uh, transition to director, at least in American scripted television at this point. 
Exactly. Uh, the door was not opening. You know, I was knocking on the door and I was poking my face through the door and asking if I could come in. Um, you know, and I kept getting a lot of very polite, you know, we'll talk about it. We'll see, you know, maybe later, et cetera, from like, from everybody. And I think that was hard for me, uh, because I would get footage constantly on all different shows that was not good and have to find a way to, you know, make a, a really quality episode or product out of it. And this, you know, editing is such a great, you know, it's such a great extension of being in film school while also getting paid because you're getting to study up close, like director's footage. Like I work for so many great directors and I work for a lot of terrible directors who, you know, with the terrible ones, you're like, oh my God, this is garbage. How do we find a way to make this into something? These shots are missing. The stuff doesn't match. The things doesn't make sense. The story's not told. And then, you know, elevating that, but also with great director's footage, getting it and being like, okay, how do I make sure that I don't fuck this up? Obviously these dailies are great and they're really full of life and you want to make sure the cut doesn't break any of that, right? But it's still like, you know, maintain some fidelity to the material and to the emotion and to the tone and like it's still telling a story visually that's cool and, and impactful. So I had a lot of experience, you know, doing that, either cleaning up or, or you know, just polishing and improving. But, you know, I, I left to go do this crazy ass girlfriend pilot. I was like, you know, it was a big pilot for Showtime and Showtime... I, we were very proud of what we turned in and they did not like it. They passed, which was upsetting, you know, but you know, six months later, along comes another network. They decide they want to pick it up. Uh, we adjust the cut back to the version that we had liked before we had done all these network notes that um, we went back to our first cut and man, it's bananas that, that I constantly, I'm like, I cannot believe it. Like I, every day I can't believe it, but like I left that job to go do this pilot just because I really loved the people. They were so, kind and generous and creative and fun and you know to win an emmy for editing that episode like you can't plan that right like you can't be like i'm gonna go do this thing and i'm pretty sure this is where it's going i just did it because i thought i would enjoy it you know and then i obviously began directing on that show and then began directing and producing on that show and that's where i am now there's a little tiny bit in that one sentence that I might want to break down before we move yeah, forward. Hey. This is the crux of the whole conversation. Yeah. So I took on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and I won an Emmy and then I'm directing and I'm producing. So here we are. There's a lot happening in there. I'm going to assume that after you uh, did the, the pilot for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, that it didn't just magically, luckily land in your lap that you transitioned to directing. How is, it that yeah. you, how is it that you made that happen? Um, you know, since, look, I moved here into LA in 1998 and sometime within, probably within a few weeks of editing that first job, I started being like, Hey, so like, uh, you know, it was like a little music video clip show. And I was asking about like being on set and shooting it. And like, you know, like I said, there were years worth, but especially in that first year, I was definitely making a lot of noise about like, and this footage that we've got, you know, it doesn't really kind of work together the way you kind of hope it would, but you know, what would fix that is if you had me do it. Uh, this was sort of my my pitch, and generally it did not work. But you know, every now and then it did work, and I got to go and shoot like a little piece of something. And you just just like anything else, it's easy to talk about like the when you're working in post. It's easy to talk about the mistakes that were made on the set and the failure of the footage uh, without a deeper understanding of how and why things went wrong and what you maybe could have done to make it better. And that just comes with practice, you know. And I just started taking every opportunity I could to like go be on set and like run a, you know, little DV camera for like, you know, a couple hours and shoot some B-roll of this cemetery for this, whatever it was, you know. 
and years and years of just gently saying to people like, yeah, but you should have me shoot it. And then this wouldn't be a problem. We would have all these problems we're having in post right now. And over the years, more and more people started to say yes. But also as a result of that, I was slowly building up a slightly longer and longer list of stuff that I had shot. Um, and a lot of it was very small and like, you know, a lot of it was like basic cable and stuff that hadn't aired. And like, it was just little bits, but it started to add up, you know, uh, in a banana shaped curve or a hot mm. stick shaped curve, which is still something <laughs> I'm really clear on. Maybe you can put a drawing on the website of like what this is. Um, but, you know, by the, so by the time I had gotten, I remember doing the pilot of Crazy X, you know, they knew that I had directed this half hour we had talked about a few years prior and that I had directed like part of the Oscars and part of the Emmys that both come off directly off of, you know, editing those jobs and getting an opportunity to shoot some. So they knew, you know, and they were like, if we get a second season, you know, first season shows are hard to get slots on if you're as a first time director, um, just because from a studio perspective, there's so much at stake and, you know, you're as an unproven director, a risky proposition for them. And, one of the big things that is in play for these kinds of jobs is they're obviously, of course, these people are looking to minimize risk, right? So you, Zach, are a director who's done like a hundred episodes. Like they're not worried about hiring you, right? Um, and they're not worried that it will blow back on them if they approve you, that their boss will be like, why'd you hire Zach? And you're like, well, he's done a hundred episodes. But if you try to hire me and I've done zero, then they're gonna be like, why did you approve this guy and failed? Right. That's the sort of CYA cover your ass. Absolutely. And, uh, so by the time, you know, we finished our first season, they knew, and then they offered me an episode season two. So we're going to pause for a second. I'm going to share my screen. Holy crap. uh, I'm going, I'm going to include this image in the show notes, but live on this call, this would be the four stages of hockey stick growth. Visually, you can see this is very similar to what you're talking about. Years and years of tinkering, just trying the thing, shooting in the backyard, shooting in the graveyard, going across the over the pond, shooting some international stuff, learning. And then all of a sudden you hit the inflection point. Yeah. The inflection point was, wait a second, somebody's actually asking me to do this. And it goes back to our initial conversation, setting yourself up for success. But you didn't say, oh, you know what? I haven't done enough TV to be perfect. You thought to yourself, I know enough to survive day one. I know enough to get on set and be good enough and learn the rest. Cause like you said, I'm a little bit cocky. I'm pretty sure I can do this, even though maybe me, I don't know, maybe I can't, but we're going to find out. But you, you had the confidence that you could figure the rest of it out. And that's where you hit the inflection point. And now you're just off to the races, but it started with that one transition from I've been doing this stuff for years here and there, the most important piece of it being, and I think this is what everybody misses. They have to make their intentions known. So many people are waiting for the opportunity. Like, why aren't they asking me if I want to direct? You have to be clear and make your intentions known. Squeaky wheel, right? You got it. The squeaky wheel gets the oil. And you don't want to squeak too much because then they'll like get a new wheel. But you got to like, you absolutely have to. And look, I've I've been making it clear to everybody that I possibly could since I was 23, that that was the plan, right? Directing, scripted, brand name content. And I got... I mean, I got literally laughed at a lot. I will never forget, funny story. I will never forget. I had directed a reality pilot, I don't know, more than a decade ago. Um, And it was not very good. And I remember I went to get, uh, because, you know, so much much of the work, especially for post, it's hard. But I feel like post-production people need to be aware of, like, it's really important to stay networking constantly, you know? Like, however much you're doing, it's probably not enough. Like, 
just just means like going and getting a sandwich with you know some producer in the middle of the afternoon or going and getting a drink with people after work like it's really it's really important it's it you know generating genuine uh, relationships and connections with people is way better than just having met them once and hoping they'll remember you two years later when you're looking for a job right like so many of our jobs come on whims someone's just like oh right uh, I do know an editor who's available. Uh, you know, I just spoke to them a few weeks ago, whatever that is. But I had gone to get a sandwich at Panera in Glendale with this producer of this reality pilot after we finished it to talk about kind of what was next. He was doing this, like, you know, scripted show. And I was like, I want to talk to him about it. And I'll never forget that the person who ran that production company happened to walk into that Panera also. Um, and I was really excited. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to get to talk to this guy. And the producer I was sitting with, you know, uh, he introduced me. We were like, what are you guys talking about? And he was like, oh, we're just talking about career stuff. He's like, Kubrick thinks he's going to be directing scripted shows. And laughed. And I was like, yo, what? Like, what a dick. And it's funny because like, I, you know, it's embarrassing, right? Like, it's embarrassing. I was like, oh yeah, I guess I just, They're like, oh, well, what kind of stuff have you done? I was like, well, I just did this pilot for this reality show that's not getting picked up. It's not going to air. No one's ever going to see it, you know, but I worked hard on it for a few days while we were shooting it. And like, it was a pretty it was a lousy feeling, right? But it just strengthened my resolve and uh, I am doing it now, which is really exciting. Uh, sidebar, that producer is not doing it. <laughs> I, lo- I love the little twisting of the knife. That's great. You strike me as the type that when you hear the word can't, that just motivates you more. Yeah, I just feel like, you know, it, there's no reason. You know, it's funny because like I, I used to, it happens sometimes that I'd be working, you'd be working late at night in post and like, I remember having a day working on a show where I realized that the people I was working with at like the middle of the night were all, I was like, it occurred to me, I was like, oh, I'm working for my extra like hourly overtime, you know, like golden hours, right? Or whatever. Uh, plus my like night premium, you know, I was like, but these people are working for an unbelievable amount of money, but we're all spending the same hours here together. I'm just being compensated extremely, very differently than they are. Um, and it sort of didn't sit right with me because I was like, you know, I would say this all the time, but like editors are creative leaders on shows. Like I think at some point long ago, it was like a bit of a technical process. Like you were talking about like not being an avid tech and all this, but like it's, you know, at least a third of the process. Like, you know, there's like writing and pre-production and there's actually shooting and then there's post and post is its whole own phase of the project where things change dramatically where the, you know, the TV show or the film comes together. I mean, that's like the essence of filmmaking. It's a unique thing that doesn't exist outside of filmmaking. <laughs> like, this is why it's hard to explain to like your parents what it is that editors do, because everybody can understand what actors do, what costumes does, what props does, what the composer does. Like, those things are real world things that exist elsewhere, right? Set building and all this. People know what all those things are, you know? The post only exists here. Editing only exists like this. It's an art form that is invisible, right? And that nobody understands, but it's, I mean, I'm biased, even as a director full-time now, I'm like, post is the most important part of the process. And so it's, you know, I think that, I, I do think that there's a problem in the industry where post is not respected enough for what we do um, and also not remotely understood well enough. Uh, you know, and I think that most people in post probably feel that way. Um, and it's too bad. Because, you know, as my career has changed uh, to, you know, directing and producing now, really learned so much more that it's like, stupidly, I didn't know so much, you know, when I was still cutting. Like, I sort of had a sense of what life was like, uh, you know, above the line, 
but man, it is really different. And I, you know, continue to advocate for post to like get more opportunities like this because, you know, this is where the grand game is being played. But what I've always talked about for years and years and years is you look at the process, like you said, you do the math just as far as number of days involved with the project outside of the showrunner, the show creator, the main writer, like head writer, showrunner, or a director if you're in features, nobody spends more time from the beginning until the end except the editor. Absolutely. Or the editors if you're in television. Absolutely. Except we're treated like technicians. Yes. Right? So that there's just the mere fact that you see a composer above the line and an editor below the line has never made any sense to me. And I'm not saying I want to bring the composers down with us. I'm saying we should be up in the same above the line conversation because we're bringing just as much or even more to it. A writer's above the line. I write with Avid, they write with Final Draft. What's the difference? I'm doing the same thing, but it's so easy to relegate us as technicians because we're just cutting out the bad parts and we're just putting all the clips together and we've already written it for you. It's all, all the lines are even in order. Right. How hard could it be? How hard right? could it be? Uh, yeah, well, you know, as, as, as you know, editors, you know, I, I say a lot, we're professional rearrangers. Um, you know, and how, I mean, how often are you looking at a cut and you have a moment of inspiration where you're like, actually this end part of this thing should be before this beginning part of the thing. This, these parts are redundant. They're duplicative. They don't need to both be here. They don't advance the story in any meaningful way. Yeah. But what, you know, to what you're saying, like people, nobody wants to edit, you know, I mean, like just, I mean, people obviously want to, and I love doing it. I haven't got the chance to do it in a while, but like everybody industry-wide, like people want to like write and direct and act. And those are things that, you know, everybody's aiming for. Nobody wants to be an editor, you know, because like nobody understands what it is. And it seems weird and foreign and strange. It's not a thing that's easily explainable to other people. You know, we're the, we're the dark arts of production, right? Like it's a strange thing that people sort of have a sense of, but like it's difficult to wrap people's head around. But ultimately I, you know, part of the success I'm finding directing now is that like as a director, understanding with a real detailed understanding of post-production, we can save so much money and so much time on set, like not shooting things that won't cut together, you know, or like or not shooting things that don't need to be shot with too many takes because there are ways like we can quickly one animat will solve this where should we can actually let's make the choice now to shoot this thing locked off so that we can next split screen this it'll be a we can just fix in the online it's not even a visual effect things like that that you know i'm like hey if we're gonna if we're gonna pick this scene up again from the middle just make sure this one actor is turning back around so that we have an actual cut point to come from the shot that i expect is going to go before it in the sequence you know, I'm constantly on, when I'm on set, I'm constantly picturing what the script window looks like for this scene. You know, I'm like looking at it, I'm like, well, okay, yeah, there's enough of these, there's enough of A here. We'll need B from over, like just, you know, I have no concept of how people direct without a detailed understanding of post. It doesn't make sense to me. Like I know people do it, obviously, and successfully. It just doesn't, make, I don't understand that. So what I'm curious about is you have alluded to this idea that there are so many things you didn't understand about the way the business really works. And for us mere editors, the peasants of the industry that haven't seen the other side, we don't know how good the, the above the line people have it without, you know, 
breaking all of the rules and telling all the secrets that you've been secretly told in these these rooms like don't tell the editors that the directors and the producers get this right but i I would love to know what are some of the things that you've realized that would be important for people that are below the line that are wondering why is it that we're treated this way or why is this structured this way what are some of the things that you've learned that you think would be beneficial for the craftspeople to know that's a great question i think that there is man there's a lot to talk about you know Post is really treated, like you were kind of alluding to, oftentimes like peasants, you know, when they, you know, editors are like, you know, dukes and should have a seat at the table, you know, and ideally when you're on a show, a lot of shows don't do this. And I don't think they're doing it maliciously at all. They're just not, they're just not thinking about it, you know, and as the editor, you have the opportunity to involve yourself in the process. You know, people would like, I think, editors to be at like, tone meetings and at production meetings and I'm involved in the process so you can raise your hand and say something. But by the same token, a lot of times people do not want additional voices in the room. You know, they're not looking for someone to show up and be like, "Uh, excuse me, it would work better if you did it like this, you know, because that's just a lot of people aren't open to that. But, um, you know, if you find the, the best case scenario for all of us is to work with people uh, that we enjoy collaborating with, right? It's like being in a band or just like playing music at someone's house, like in their garage or whatever. Like you just want people that you can jam with and you kind of jam well with, you kind of bounce ideas off each other. Everyone's respectful. Everyone's like listening. And I found, you know, the environment at Crazy Ex-Girlfriend was so great for me because everyone is so open and so collaborative. Um, and like I said before, very just generous of spirit. And like, it was just a great, it was like the best job I've ever had. And to be there for four years, was like a dream come true. You know, but like a lot of times people want the editors excluded from things, which is no good. And I feel like, you know, for those of you who find yourself in an environment like that, you should leave. Um, I don't think it's necessary to work like that. Uh, I certainly always was like, when I would find myself in, working in situations where people that were not respecting what it was that posted data or the massive contribution we made, I would leave. Because, you know, you, it's a, you got to live your life. You got to go home and see your family and your friends. And you, like, it's not healthy. You talk about this all the time, man. Like, it's not healthy to like, just be at work, you know, all the time. I mean, sure. Sometimes you get long days and there's nothing you can do about it. The schedule backs up. And you, but like, as an occasional thing, sure. It's like housing a whole bag of potato chips. Like do that as an occasional thing, right? Don't do it all the time. Um, and, you know, I, I think that the more and more I started to like slowly learn about the way that, you know, deals are structured. Like, cause it's not a thing that a lot of us deal with, you know, the post end, like, you know, I mean, look, for 14 years, I made my own deal on every show, like that I worked on 14 years, 16 years for 16 years. I made my own deal on every show I went on to. And back in the day that meant like, you know, trying to negotiate an extra, like what, like $50 a day. Right. And like they offer, you know, way back in the day, it would be like, well, it's gonna be like, is it 700? Is it 750? What are we talking about? You know? And we're like, just trying to be pushing for as much as we can. And sometimes it's like, well, we can't go above like, you know, 34, 50 a week. And you're like, okay. But, right? but, like, but we have our precedents. Don't you understand? We have precedents. Yeah. Right. Which is like, I'm like, yeah, I guess. But you know, I, Look, I, I don't know if this is the right attitude to have had. It worked for me. I don't know if it will work for everybody. And I don't know if it backfired ever on me. But I used to be like, well, then I'm not doing it. Like, you know, I, since the beginning was, especially the beginning as a freelancer, like from, you know, age 23, was constantly, and still am, constantly concerned that I might suddenly be out of work permanently. Like, you know, our careers are so weird. It could all just blow away, you know, tomorrow. And 
like, okay, how much have I saved up? You know, I'm like, so I became very meticulous very early on about saving as much money as I could. Cause you know, you don't know when the next job's coming, right? Like all of us, like, it's like, okay, I have this gig and like, okay, it's this many months and then how long will that be off for them? You don't want to be panicked and stressed. Cause like, you know, you got to pay the rent, you got to pay bills, you got to get food, you got to pay your like health premium, whatever that is. Like I found that I was constantly just trying to be smart with money and as freelancer, I think it's really important. It's like, I'm not sure there's anything more important than that because that's ultimately the bottom, literally. But also, if you if you operate that way, you start to be able to create opportunities for yourself to say no, which is the most powerful thing you can do as a creative worker. To be like, well, I'm getting paid for my creative talents. Um, you're getting paid because people like to have you around. You know, people want everyone. People want to give people opportunities. I mean, good people do. You don't want to work for people that don't want to give people opportunities. Um, you want to work with supportive and and creative, cool people, ideally. And yeah, I, I, even like, you know, back in the day, so it'd be like a job would be like, well, we can't pay more than like 32 a week. I'm like, well, okay, fine. I'm not doing it. I'm looking for 34 or whatever. It was like, it's not a huge difference, right? It's like, it's like, you know. It's about respect. That, that's the thing for me is that it shows a certain level of respect that, and this is, it it was, it took me a long time to learn this because I've always been of the craftsman blue collar mentality that I am somebody that gets paid for the hours that I work. That's just, that's the way that I was brought up, right? You're, you're a hard worker. You do what you're told. I was born in a farming community of 400 people where you were lucky to have a job where you got paid 15 or 20 bucks an hour. So you get paid for hours, right? And the fundamental mindset, mindset shift that I made, thanks to my business mentor, was that we don't get paid for the hours that we work. We get paid for the value that we bring to the project and to the team. Absolutely. And I believe that even though I might be working the same 45 to 60 hours a week as another person on the other side of the wall doing the same job and the same software, there's a different level of value that I know I am able to bring. And I confidently want to convey that in negotiations. And if they don't want me to bring that value, that's fine. Find somebody else that'll sit in the same chair for less money. But I've seen it happen over and over, and I'm sure you have too, where they make that choice. Then you get the phone call six weeks later, eight weeks later, we need your help. Like, oh, but that guy knew Avid. Yes. He he knew how to edit, right? So what do you need me for? It's a totally different level. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat. And I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. 
that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. Yeah, I think you have to start to sense when you're in demand. And, you know, also you're getting paid as a freelancer for the time that you're not working too. Like, you know, a weekly rate, like 3,000 a week sounds, you know, multiplies out fantastically when you're working, if you worked all 50 weeks, but you don't work all 52 weeks, you know, you can't make jobs line up like that. And you, a lot of times, yeah, the hours are not great and you don't want to be like going full speed all the time, you know, and that all just factors into like, you know, how much you how much you're worth, you know, and what you can negotiate over scale. And, you know, studios, especially on bigger shows, they want to be like, here's the rate and that's it. Take it or leave it. You know, you have to be willing to be in a position to be like, well, leave it. Like you have to be able to say, like, I think that it's hard. It's not easy, man. I'm, I don't, I'm not saying this is an easy thing to do. You know, this comes with like decades of experience for myself, but like, you have to be able to say, no, like, I'm not going to do this. It's not worth it to me. I'm not, I don't want to, because you don't want to be in a situation where then you get there and it's day one and now you start working and you're working hard and it's crazy and it's not a show you like and you get the drive across town is no fun and like people aren't great and you're like, why am I doing this? Well, I should have asked for more money and don't want to be kicking yourself because you could have asked for more money. Truly, the worst case is they'll say no and then you could still do it. You know, you can ask for more, they'll say no and you go, okay, great, I'll do it anyway. You know, you have to know what you're willing to settle for. But I mean, that's just, that's just part of the business end, you know? And I think as creatives, it can be tricky to be willing to stand up for yourself. Well, like you said, one of the key points to being able to say no is that I have to financially plan and put myself in a position where I'm not afraid to say no. Because if I've got two weeks worth left in my account, I've got no choice. I have to say, I have to say yes, but they're, one of the key ingredients to burnout is resentment. If you resent the chair that you're in and the way that you're being treated, I don't care how amazing the show is that you're working on, the credits. I don't even care if you win an Emmy. If you resent the fact that you're there and the way people are treating you, it will eat you alive. Absolutely. It's, it's stressful to be in a situation where you're, like, you're never home for dinner, right? Like it's all, it can be fun and games to be like, oh, we're getting dinner ordered here at work. And, you know, if you're going home at like seven something afterwards, right? But if you're working till like nine, 12, 2 a.m., well, now it's not, now this is just taking over everything you're doing and that's not healthy, you know? And that, again, in, in, in service of trying to have a long career, it, it's just not a good idea. Plus like, you know, just to zoom out for a second, like why, why did we all get into this? We got into this ideally, like, cause it was like, there were hopefully cool, big opportunities on some future horizon, you know, like doing some giant movies or working on some cool like music videos or like doing this like sick trailer, like whatever it was, like something that inspired you. And it's at some point along the way for, I think a lot of people, it can quickly become like, okay, well, I got to make sure I'm laying enough track in front of me that I can just survive to the next job, you know, which is unfortunate because, you know, obviously everyone has their own different financial circumstances and it can be, hard. You can get painted into a corner where now you have to say yes to this job that you don't want to do. Um, and look, I've been there. Man. I like, I worked for some garbage rates on some truly garbage 
programming that was, you know, it was non-union and in windowless offices with people that were mean and did not want to hear me speak during the day. And, you know, I cutting a sizzle reel, you know, 10 years ago for some reality company where I uh, was, had a suggestion about like the structure of it and like what, you know, maybe part of the way the show could be pitched. I never, never forget the head of this company being like, why don't you leave the pitching to me and just do the editing? And I also will never forget that I quit that day. And I was like, then I'm not doing it. Like, I do not believe that it's okay to be treated like that. And I do not, I was like, it's also like, this is reality sizzle reel. This is not like a career make or break. You can't be scared of stuff like that. And I understand the feeling it, but like, I was like, nope, no, no, that was it. I'm not doing this anymore. Like, I'm not like, this is not, I didn't move across the country or go to film school or like be a fan of movies. I did not do that to do this. You know, or to be treated like that, right? To be too- yes, exactly. That's what I mean. Like to be in a, in a in a in a workspace like that. It was like no, absolutely not. Like this is just not acceptable to me. And I, you know, I I, I feel like that has served me well. You know, being able to be like, nope, this is not. Especially, and a big part of this, I think, I was inspired by looking around at you know, find people whose careers you admire and think they're doing cool stuff, and find out what they did and sort of what their, what their track was. And I don't know, I think it's easier for people, you know, I have friends now who are like, well, it's amazing you're directing and producing like, you know, these like Netflix shows and whatever else. I'm like, yeah, you know, eight years ago, I was in a windowless room editing act six of a show on a cable network that nobody owns, you know what I mean? Or nobody has. And like, man, I mean, that's, you know, just have to be like, no, I don't want to do this. Like he was doing for a paycheck and okay, great. It was like, you know, they're like, well, it pays, you know, a few hundred hours less than normal. And I'm like, okay, I just needed a paycheck, you know, it just was needed to work. But I think the more room you leave yourself, the more flexibility you have to make choices, right? And when you start being able to make choices as a creative, uh, you know, professional, that's everything. Absolutely. Well, the, the last topic that I want to hit on, uh, which I alluded to uh, briefly before we even started this, and one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on the show specifically, using your words, not mine, you've alluded to yourself more than once as the quote unquote, the Brown editor or the Brown director. And I think it's really important for an Indian kid that's being told he needs to be a director, or he needs to be a doctor, he needs to be a lawyer, or an accountant, or what, whatever color they might be. It's so easy right now to think, oh, well, I don't know of any Indian TV directors, so it's just not possible, right? So when I, I had to, did an interview with Monty DeGraff talking about mentorship a few months ago, and I saw a comment, and it, the comment, it, it, I couldn't even comprehend it. It just the the that this was somebody's worldview really shocked me. It looked like it was a young Indian girl. I would guess maybe right out of college at best, maybe still in college, and seeing Monty at the highest levels as an editor as a black man, she said, "I didn't realize that people like that could work at that level." Oh my god! And I was like. I couldn't even comprehend that somebody would think it's literally not possible, which is the whole reason that I want to have people like Monty and you on the show so people can say it is possible. But talk to me because I'm, I'm assuming that you didn't just skirt through from getting out of college to where you are now without at least a challenge or two along the way. Well, I think, you know, I think that probably a lot of those challenges were things that I didn't necessarily recognize were happening for that reason, you know. Which, um, which makes them even more important to talk about. Yeah, you know, and years later, I mean, you don't know. Like, you know, there's studies done about, like, uh, 
you know, resumes being sent in, identical resumes being sent in for people, you know, whose names might be like Zach Arnold versus like, you know, Deshaun Johnson and like what, like who's getting those, who's getting calls, you know? I mean, my heart, my name is only 11 letters long and it's hard enough for people to pronounce. Like, I don't know, that could, that could have certainly played a factor. I'm not sure, you know? Um, but I do know that like you run, it's, it's hard to fight against something that you don't necessarily know is there or is happening and you're not sure that's the reason why it's happening. It's easier now for sure than it was, man, five years ago. You know, things changed so quickly that people, you know, all the studios started to really, really be aware of it. And all the guilds are starting to be really, really aware of this as a problem and realizing that the biggest issue is not so much in the hiring, but is in the pipeline of people getting opportunities to like get into the game, like to, you know, even know the people, you know I mean? Like you, it's just the bottom line truth is that, like with those of us in hiring positions, we hire people who are either qualified or that we know and that are slightly less qualified, but they're like, we, I believe this person can do it, you know? And that, I mean, man, that's important. You know, it makes it, it's hard to like, it's hard if you don't know people that are, you know, are like from different diverse backgrounds than you are. Right. And like, where do you know those people? I was funny, man, I've been in, you know, ACE for, let's like I said, six years and recently learned that there's like a diversity committee. And I was like, we have a diversity committee. I was like, there are like, there are, you know, like, why don't I know? Why don't I know about this? <laughs> like, if I don't know about it, who else doesn't know about it? You know? Um, and so I think it becomes about getting the word out to whoever you can. And, you know, like the ACE internships and stuff like that. I have met, you know, editors who are on, up and coming through that. Like, you know, people have like showed up at work and been like, I'm like, yeah, great. I didn't know you existed. I run into this, man. Like, even as a director, I run into this where... You know, I've been a, a, a co-chair of the Asian American Committee of Directors Guild, and I have learned that currently, right now, there are, uh, if you count up all the South Asian, you know, directors in the guild who have done more than two episodes of TV, there are, in the last few years, there are 16 in the whole industry, which is stunning. But what's even more stunning is sometimes I will meet an exec and they'll be like, oh my God, like, we didn't even know about you, you know? And I'm like, fuck, like, I'm trying, I'm like out there hustling constantly. And I'm like, wow, how do you not know about me? Like, I was like, how do I not know about you? Like, it's just about, so much about this is about educating people about who's available and who's out there. And that just comes through relationships. It's easier now as a director, I mean, having like an agent, manager, et cetera, who are like representing on my behalf. I had a fantastic, fantastic agent when I was editing and she made such a gigantic difference, you know? It's because of her that I ended up on Crazy X. It's because of her that I ended up on all those different good positions, you know, all the help you can get. So I'm, I'm curious. I know that we need to wrap it up and I want to be respectful of your time, but there's, a, there's one final question that I'd asked a, a previous guest, very similar to your situation. Uh, have you ever run into Andy Armaganian? Absolutely. I, she uh, was in film school a few years ahead of me. Small world. Yeah. So there we go. So I, I recently did a conversation with her and we had a, a similar talk and she had brought up this idea of being the token female hire. And I'm curious. Token, I've never been the token female hire. And I, and, and of course, you've never been the token female right. hire. But do you, do you ever feel like that there's this fear that I'm the token brown hire? Uh, no, I feel like if I'm the token brown hire, that is awesome. Uh, I truly, you know, I, I have a, I think I have a really different perspective on this than a lot of people do, and it's probably the least woke perspective I can have. But I don't care. <laughs> I'm like, I just want the job, right? Like. I just want the job. I, I sort of, I, I, I have just generally never cared about that. But the other thing I say, like I said about that other job before where I was like their ninth or 10th or 11th choice, I was like, I also don't care about that. 
you know, I've kind of had an attitude my whole career that's like, who cares? Like, just put me in the game and like, let's see what I can do. You know, like in, I'll tell you, this is stupid, but like in college, right? I was the lighting designer on this one musical. And there's a lot of different like theater groups, right? At school. Um, and I had like, you know, gone to the meeting to like, be like, I want to lighting design the show. And then like, I got it and I was excited and did like a job that was actually really, really cool. I was very proud of it. And like all of the other theater groups, a whole bunch of them came out of the woodwork and were asking me to do their next show after that. And I remember at the rap party, cast party, whatever, like, you know, that night, next night, whatever. Um, I remember the director of the show, who's my age, he was like, oh my God, he's like, dude, and he, we're just drinking, but he was like, yeah, he's like, he's like, can you imagine? He's like, the other, that other guy wasn't available. How lucky that was that we got you. And I was like, wait, what? He's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm like, wait, what do you think? <laughs> and he's like, well, yeah, we wanted this other guy, but he, he, he had a, took another show. And I was like, dude, I do not care. Like, you know, 20, 19 year old me, I was like, I don't care if I'm your like third or 10th choice. I was like, I got to do it and look what I did and you were happy and I was happy and that's it. You know, like, I think one of the reasons that you may look at it that way, which uh, goes back to the piece of advice that she had given that was really profound. I never heard anybody put it this way before, but she said, I don't care if I'm the female token hire. The reason being that I might be that token hire the first time, but nobody hires you again because you're the token female or the token brown guy or anything else. Oh, interesting. You only, you, you might get the first hire, but you're not going to get asked back. And I think you have such confidence in your ability to deliver. Just get me in the door. Like you said, I just put me in the game coach. I know I can play. I just want the one opportunity. I don't care how it happens. If I have to be the water boy yeah. and everybody on the field gets injured and I put on somebody else's pads, I now have the opportunity to show you what I can do, but that requires an immense amount of preparation which brings us back full circle to where we started, just doing that one thing after another and just building the skills and the confidence yeah. that you can show up day one and do the job. See, well, you, look, I am, uh, you know, from Philadelphia, I'm a diehard Eagles fan. I uh, am absolutely not a Tom Brady fan, but Tom Brady was a sixth round draft pick, you know, back up. And he got on the field only because the guy in front of him, Drew Bledsoe, got injured. So suddenly they had to turn to their backup who was like, you know, like, literally draft pick number 199. Like all the other teams took off 200 people before someone picked him. And then look what happened. You know, now he's Tom Brady. I mean, like it doesn't matter. You know, I, I think you can't be precious about stuff like that. You just, all you can control. The thing you can control the most is your skill level. Um, and just to keep trying to get better. You just want to keep getting better. You know I mean? Like by the time I, the time I did my last editing job, I've been doing it, you know, for 20 years. And I, I mean, I love it. And every scene that comes along, it's like its own challenge, you know? It's like, yeah, sometimes there's kind of like a simple two-person scene, but they're all different, right? But it's like, you don't just want to keep doing the same thing over and over. And even now as a director, at this point, I've directed, I don't know, 25 episodes of TV in the last couple of years. I'm like, you just, the, every, you know, scenes with two people, they're all different. You're still looking for different shades and different like ways to tell the story and like have it not just be, you know, kind of the same thing, right? Like, I think skill level is such a, it's not talked about now. Like, I feel like the hard skills are talked about. The avid skills and the certifications and here's how to use Premiere. Like, I feel like that stuff is talked about a lot. I feel like the, the real soft skills, whether like you said, it's the relationship building, it's how to manage a room, how to negotiate. Those are the things that I think are so undervalued on the craft side of the business. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, developing relationships, like working with, I mean, you got to realize like when you're working with a director in the room, a producer in the room, like 
you're still kind of in charge of the session and like you're still kind of in charge of the cut and you have to be able to effectively, gently manage these people who are up the chain from you, right? And, you know, find a way into their uh, creative confidence. Like, feel like you're having a conversation that's back and forth and like, you know, it's like, I'm look, I play the bass. I played bass for a long time. Like, it's like that. Sometimes you have these guitar players who are like, eh, I'm the lead guitar player. Check out the sixth solo. And I'm like, yeah, dope. I'm still over here controlling, you know, melody and rhythm and tempo. So uh, <laughs> go have fun with what you're doing. But like, you know, you're still based on a, you know, a grounded space that we're providing. You know, I don't know. I, I feel like over the years, also kind of a chatty person. Like, you know, I would, someone will pitch a note in the room and I'll start working on it, but I will be talking to them while I'm doing it. Because, you know, it sucks that there's just someone sitting there watching your work. Like, you know, and he's like, just let's just talk about the thing. What are you doing this weekend? Let's get talking about some other stuff. They be on their phone, like keep it chill, keep it relaxed, keep people feeling like comfortable. And like, you're just kind of like sitting over here working on what you're working on, you know? I don't think enough people are putting on as much of a magic show because it is a magic show. That's what we're doing. It's like post is, you're, you're, we're the idea, ideally editors are magicians and, you know, it's a, it's a, it should be a fun space for people. But that, all that comes with, you know, experience and skill. I mean, it's certainly not that way at the outset. Well, you've shared at least 173 different knowledge bombs over the course of this interview. But I know that people reach out to you all the time, whether it's at panels, asking you questions, sending you emails. If there were just kind of one simple piece of advice that you think sums up a lot of the questions that you're asked, either to get somebody started, to help them make a transition, like what, what nugget would you like to leave them with? Ooh, nuggets. That's a tough one. There's so many. You know, I, I do think that thinking about editing as a career, I think it would be really important for people to, when they see where they want to get to, when they see other people doing jobs like that you want, to really stop and ask yourself, why not? Like, why it can't be you? You know, I think a lot of people look at it and go, well, that's that's too far away. It's not possible. I'm like, yeah, okay. You're not going to go from, you know, step one to step a hundred all at once. Right. But like you're planning on having this career for another 10, 20, 30 plus years. Like, okay, you don't have to get there now. It's not a failure. I mean, I, you know, yeah, I'm really excited. I won an Emmy. I won an Emmy after working in the industry for 18 years. Right? I was 41 when it happened. Like, Okay, so it doesn't happen when you're like 25 and you're not like making all these cool lists and it's like, who the f*** cares? Like, do cool shit. It takes time. I, that's, there you go. That's what I'll tell people. It takes time, you know? My last assistant editor, she, you know, look, she just got a universal feature and she's like 31 or something. And I'm like, well, that's bananas. Like, that did not happen to me, you know? But like, great. She's absolutely out there slaying the game. But like, okay, great, you know? Like, that's amazing. But like, so what? You cut your first movie in your 40s or in your 50s. Like, it doesn't matter, you know? I just think like, keep your eyes on the prize and keep asking yourself why it can't be you doing the thing you want to do, you know? Look at the people who've done those things, you know? Like, I've been fortunate enough to like, meet people who've like, cut things like Game of Thrones and Star Wars and all of them are like, really excited about what they did. One of them started off doing that. And I bet every single one of them at some point thought, ugh, I could never do that. I, I could never work on Star Wars or Game of Thrones, but through a certain uh, you know amount of events and some luck and hard work and creating those opportunities, those things end up coming together. But I think the, the, the most important thing that people just don't think is a, a skill that must be acquired and honed no different than everything we've talked about is mindset. 
having the right mindset. Yeah. And if your mindset is, well, I could never do that, well, then you're never going to. But I love the way that you're closing this off. Why not? Why can't I do that? There's really no reason as long as I'm willing to put in the work and understand that it takes time. Because other people are. This was that thing, like, you know, you start to realize that, like, and again, now having, like, made a transition to being above the line, I'm realizing more and more stuff that I am ashamed to feel stupid that I didn't fully detailed realize, just didn't realize, like, how much the people above the line are getting paid and how much sort of, like, how well they're being treated. And, like, you know, I feel like posts should be treated that way. Um, but in the current, you know, environment where they're not, like, why not, like, be, why not be reaching for more, you know? Why not be wanting to be more part of the process? Yeah, I, I've, you know, been fortunate enough to see, you know, people who went ahead of me career-wise before I did, like, who were editors who then became, like, started getting producer credits on their shows and, Sometimes it came with a little extra money and sometimes it didn't. But like, it just starts to be about putting more respect on the name of the editor, uh, which I completely believe there should be. Well, clearly I agree with you. And if anybody wants to revert to my uh, back catalog of episodes where I talk about this topic, refer to episodes one through 274, because I talk about this on every stinking show. <laughs> It's all about more respect for the creators, but also treating ourselves with that same amount of respect. Again, I left that soapbox in another room. Don't have time to drag it in here. But dear Lord, this was so worth the wait. I know I've been trying to make this work forever. I'm so, so happy I got this conversation on the record. I think that you shared some tremendous knowledge that people are going to be inspired. And I think that we can, uh, we, can, we can change some people's career trajectories because of our conversation today. So I can't thank you enough for being here. If people wanted to connect with you, how can they find you? Uh, where am I? I'm on, I mean, I'm on Twitter is the best place to find me. I feel like, you know, Twitter, Instagram, more Twitter, really, you know. All. So social media, that's the place to find you is either Twitter or Instagram. What are your handles? Uh, it's the same. It's just my name, Kabir Akhtar. Uh, if you can spell it, then you can find me. All right. So that, that's how they earn their way in the door. If you can spell it via a search and you find my account, bam, reach out. Yeah, Google, Google will definitely be like, oh, did you mean to spell it this way? And I'm like, yes, yes, it probably, it probably did. <laughs> well, this has been an absolute pleasure. I know how valuable your time is and I appreciate you giving a small amount of it to me and my audience. So thank you so much, Kabir. Yeah, man, absolutely. Thank you and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even going to send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.